Welcome, everybody. I'm James Putzel, and I'm Professor of Development Studies at the International Department of uh, the Department of International Development here at the school. Okay? It gives me great pleasure tonight to welcome Marcelo Neri to the to the school. Um, this is a time to talk about Brazil. Uh, the the Worker Party government was just reelected um, the end of last month, and it was a real showdown, a very close fight uh, between Dilma Rousseff and her opponent uh, in the Social Democratic Party, Aceo uh, Neves. Uh, 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 um, and the issues that were at stake in the election are very much um, issues that are now confronting the new or the returned uh, government of the Workers' Party. You know, Brazil has been pursuing a very activist industrial policy and, a, and an innovator in, in, in social policy. And of course, right now, it's experienced some, after a period of fabulous growth, um, so, some uh, time of recession and a, and a challenge as to where it's going to go in the future. And this is why we're so lucky to have our guest here tonight to talk about this. Um, Brazil has just appointed a new Minister of Finance, um, um, and um, he comes from uh, the Chicago School, Joaquin Levy, um, and uh, there's a great expectation and a lot of pressure being put on the country to um, get its economic affairs in order. Um, so it's really a great moment to have Marcelo Neri also because he's got this wonderful post, which I think we need a post like that in Britain. I, we don't have such a post, as far as I know, as Minister for Strategic Affairs. So I asked him, what do you do? As <laughs> and it seems that you know, his, his wife uh, laughed at that question. It seems he's busy all the time. So I think that there's quite a lot that's strategic. But it seems that the ministry has to deal with major issues of social policy, uh, environmental challenges, uh, security issues, and to some extent, the BRICS. And of course, the BRICS, maybe you'll have something to say about the BRICS tonight in, in the talk, but it's on everybody's mind here. Um, but, you know, more than anything else, um, um, Marcelo Neri has a PhD in economics, yeah? So, from Princeton University, and he was the president of IPEA, which is one of the leading think tanks, is one of the leading think tanks in, in, in Brazil, and um, also he, he was a founder of the Getulio Vargas Foundation, and so, in a sense, he's one of us. So we're really happy to have you here. You also have a reputation for being, to, for very frank speaking. He's edited books on microcredit, social security, diversity, rural poverty, Bolsa Familia, which is uh, Brazil has become so famous for. Um, and so I think there's really nobody uh, better that we could welcome here to the LSE to talk to us about um, um, uh, social development in Brazil, question mark, inclusive development. So let's welcome him in the usual manner.
night, everyone. I'd like to thank Professor James and uh, Indramil for the very nice invitation. I, I, it's, a, it's a great honor to, as a researcher, as a policymaker, to be in this school. And, uh, and for me, it's even more special than that. I have my family with me and my, my son. He will hate me for it. <laughs> he just passed into economics, you know, university, so he, and he never saw a speech of mine, so for me it's a great opportunity <laughs> to be here. Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, many years ago we had, a, you know, a, a mu musician called Tom Jobim. He said, Brazil is not a simple country. It's not for amateurs. A very, and I think this is even more Brazil got even more complex today, I've, and especially these days. I think we are in a period of very, uh, very difficult to interpret Brazil, what's going on, what are the directions. So, um, so um, my, my, my presentation is about this question. Um, the outline I will divide it in three parts. I'll try to give you, provide a broad view on Brazilian um, progress, a little bit historic, um, giving my, my takes on the main turning points of Brazil, few geographic comparisons. I think for the international audience, this is interesting to see what Brazil is like. You're not going to see m m many countries like Brazil in um, but perhaps the world is very similar to Brazil, in a sense. <laughs> um, I'll talk a little bit on the development style of Brazil, development choices. Then the second part, the main part, I will talk about inclusive, sustainable development. Um, try to characterize that in the Brazilian context using household surveys, data, and in the Final part, I'll discuss the public policy prospective agenda. So these three parts. So let's start with the historic perspective. So if you look in a 50-year period, Brazil, 60s and 70s, we had enormous growth, the so-called economic miracle. Brazil grew something around 10% a year for six years, not more than that. Uh, we, it was a period of high inequality rise that will be central in my presentation, and also of dictatorship. We had a military coup in 64. 67 started the miracle, lasted until 73. But until the end of the 70s, Brazil grew at 7% a year or so, but with rising inequality. That was in the... <clears throat> In the 70s, we had the oil shock. Brazil slowed down, started the period of very slow redemocratization, which really got momentum during the 80s. The 80s was for sure the decade of redemocratization in Brazil. A lot of instability, inflationary stability, economic instability. We had plans, huge economic plans, high inflation, not only high, but very stable inflation. And, um, and we ended the decade with um, a new constitution that stands until today. Uh, in 89, it was launched, a new constitution. We had direct elections for president in 89. 
but our, also our two historic records in, uh, in first inequality, was the highest inequality ever recorded in Brazil, a Gini index of 0.63, was our highest ever, maximum is one, so quite close to the maximum possible, and also our highest inflation ever, the inflation was, um, was 80% in a single month. So Brazil was, we had really high inflation. No other country in the world from 1970 to 95 had higher inflation than Brazil. Not even Argentina, our rival in this field. <laughs> okay, so Brazil really exceeds itself in terms of instability and uh, inflationary stability in particular. As inflation went down, we started to think on longer, on a long-term agenda, thinking about putting kids into school, was, I think, was a great conquest of the 90s as well. As these kids become youngsters and got into the labor market, got, started to get formal jobs, which I think was the main, one of the main transformations of the last decade, increase in formal jobs, and uh, Brazil had a very uh, big um, uh, official transfer system, so this stable currency started to be object of transfers through the public system. Inequality fell, that was, will be the main topic of my presentation. So now we are in the next decade, so we'll put a question mark, that's part of the, what we're going to discuss here. So, uh, <clears throat> given the focus on inequality, this is the inequality path since it was first measured on a national basis in Brazil in the 60s. So during the 60s, inequality went up, big rise, a lot of people started to study inequality in Brazil, even got a nickname at that point in the beginning of the 70s, when the new census, 70 census came out, saw the comparison between 60 and 70s. So we didn't know how unequal was the country and etc. So Brazil got the nickname of Belindia, a small and rich Belgian in the middle of very poor and big India. That was the nickname we got, a lot of... Lot of um, so inequality got a little stable, but surprisingly, in fact, surprisingly stable. It was like almost a constant of nature for like three decades on a very high level. Until 90s, there was a fall of inequality, but the big fall was during the, since the turn of the century, 2001 onwards. So that was the fall of inequality. The Gini fluctuates from between zero and one, so it's still very high. It was the 18th highest in 155 countries. So we have this 180 revolution during this period of 50 years. We are basically back where we were in the 60s, which was not a very comfortable situation. And um, so to give you an idea what, what is this inequality fall, I think this, and this is Latin America, okay? Latin America have this... Uh, inverted U-shaped turn as well. So this 180 revolution. But there it starts in 1980, okay? So went up a lot during the 80s and 90s and went down during the 2000s, basically. In Brazil went a little bit down in the, in the 90s, but mostly in the, in the 2000s. 
So this gives you a better idea of what we are talking about, dividing the population between 5% groups, vintiles. These are the poorest, these are the richest. So the poorest had 113% real per capita growth, that is net of inflation and population growth, while the top 5% is almost perfect stairs. Uh, had a 27% increase. So the top, the bottom five grew 400% faster than the top five. So it gives you a, an idea. Between 2001 and 13, okay, I'm choosing the period. It's not only like the new millennium, but that's when inequality in Brazil really started to fall, started in 2001. So to give you a, like a human face in this process, we see the excluded groups in the population, like people in the rural areas, people in large and poor households, households with kids, with black people, or headed by illiterate persons, the, uh, or domestic servants. These are the ones who had the highest growth. So this is very particular about Brazil. So this is the mean so all these excluded groups are growing much faster than the mean. So that gives you a sense. So Brazil is very much at odds with most of developed and emerging economies, except for Latin America, as the first graph showed. So Latin America is living a, a process like this. Latin America is still today the most unequal continent in the world. So worldwide, maybe what we are seeing is a convergence of inequality. Those who have very high inequality, like Brazil, Latin America, it's going down. And those who had smaller inequality, like Europe and most of Europe or uh, China, India, it's going up. <clears throat> so if you look at the map of Brazil, that's the Gini within municipalities in 2000. This, the Gini in 2010. So doing again 2000, 2010. So inequality fell in 80% of municipalities in Brazil in this period, which is more or less, you know, fell 80, in 83% of Latin American countries. So there is a parallel what's happening within Brazil, what's happening in Latin America, while most of the countries in the world inequality went up within countries. That's important to say, okay? So these... So there is a parallel between Brazil and Latin America, not Brazil and most countries. So I, uh, Professor James uh, asked me to put the bricks to do this comparison. So let me start with the U.S., then I put the bricks. So here is a U.S. income distribution. So this is the world income distribution. This is each country. So basically... The bottom part, the 5% poorest in the U.S., have 60% of the world population poorer than this 5%. This is India. This is China. This is Russia. So we can say, using any poverty or wealth line, that, um, uh, that U.S. is richer than Russia. Russia is richer than China. So U.S. is richer than China. We can say that. So the question is, where is Brazil? That's the graph. Brazil is everywhere. <laughs> you know, 
the poorest in Brazil as as poor as the untouchable in India, and the riches in Brazil are not very far from the riches in Russia. So Brazil is close to the 40 degree line, the one. So Brazil is a good mirror of the world. That's one message I would like to. If you want to study the world, go to Brazil, look at it, you're going to. It's, uh, and the GDP, PPP of Brazil is very close, 94% of the world average GDP. So Brazil, but more than the mean, the distribution of Brazil is close to the world. So that's the, and more than that, not only in the picture, but also in the movement, if we see during 10 years, 2002 to 2010, Brazil grew relatively close to the world mean. So Brazil is not like an emerging country in the sense of, I, we are growing with the world, not ahead of the world, unfortunately. But that's, <laughs> Uh, so Brazil is not like this group of the BRICS is a bit uh, misleading to some extent. <clears throat> That's the genie of the world, but between nations. I'm not taking into account inequality within nations. And this uh, is the same data I showed you for Brazil. The parallel I would like to show you is here in the 2000s, the beginning, Brazil was relatively close. Brazilian inequality, the distance between Brazilians, was relatively close to the distance between countries in the world weighted by the population. And uh, this distance between countries, not talking about overall inequality, inequality between countries, so getting the growth of each country multiplying by the population, so China weights more than Brazil, that weights more than Guatemala and so forth. So inequality between countries is falling, especially in the 2000s, and is more or less parallel to Brazil. So what's happening in Brazil, not only in terms of the picture, but the change is relatively close to what's happened between countries. This is the inequality, overall world inequality, which is somewhat higher, but the between countries is Brazil is relatively close but in spite of this fall, which I showed you, the movement is still very high inequality in Brazil. So I don't think this agenda is over. We, don't, we are not in a civilized levels yet. This, of course, is a key uh, political choice. Okay. So just to give you a comparison, this is inequality in Brazil and China since 1980. I found this fall of inequality in Brazil quite amazing, but the rise in inequality in China is even more impressive. So they are most converging, you know, in this 30-year period. And, and it's amazing because, I mean, the, what's uh, curious is that when Brazil, the, when the Brazil finished its economic miracle, China started its economic miracle. And similar, in similar sense, except that China is lasting <coughs> for more than 30 years, Brazil just lasts for six years. And um, so what is happening in China is what happened in Brazil during the, our economic miracle. Huge growth with inequality rise and huge poverty reduction in spite of the inequality rise. So this is... Uh, So just to 
explore this dividing by vintiles, by, by quintiles. This is the poorest during, since the turn of the century. Give you a... So if we compare Brazil and the BRICS, uh, <clears throat> the 20% the riches in Brazil are doing worse than any of the other BRIC countries, including South Africa, India, Russia, while the 20% poorest in Brazil are doing better than all other BRICs except China. Okay? So, because inequality is rising, it's not rising a little, it's rising a lot in all BRIC countries, in particular South Africa. I lived there about 30 years ago, and during the apartheid, after the apartheid, inequality is rising a lot in inequality. Inequality in South Africa is rising a lot. Uh, it's a gene of 0.67 now, so it's really... Uh, when I went back there recently, I said, well, wait a little, takes a while that, you know, we become a democracy, it's a process, and... Uh, Brazil was very hard, you know, for many years inequality was just stable. So, <clears throat> one lesson, the, what would be the ideal change? I think if we had the growth of China and the inclusion of Brazil, this would be a good country. <laughs> so it would be like Xizil, you know, combination. <laughs> this would be a good country to live. Of course you cannot, you have to make choices, you cannot have the, you know, the best of both. What's happening during the current decade, which is important for also political reasons, you know, the mandate of, of Dilma Rousseff. And this is a key point. This is annual growth rates by population, that by household surveys, okay? So we're basically getting household income growth for everybody in Brazil. It's very different from what we have. And this is very surprising because in this decade, GDP growth in Brazil, very small. But household income, which bases well-being well and social welfare functions, is growing. The difference is in the, since 2000 and 2012 and 2013, GDP grew 0.8 per capita, okay? 0.8. Household income on the same real per capita grew 5.5. So there's a huge difference, 4.8. And this, I think, is very important to understand. And, and difficult to I don't think it's that difficult to understand. I try to explore this data, but it's not intuitive. Okay, I will, we will go back to this issue. Recently, there is discussion on personal income tax data following the work of uh, Professor Atkinson, Professor Piketty. We just started to deal with this data in Brazil, and people are very, the inequality is higher than we thought, as in other countries. It went slower than we thought, according to this personal income tax, but people tend to look only at this part. But if you trust this data, it will also inform a much higher growth than we had, than the household surveys or the national accounts, and much higher levels. And the good news overcome the bad news. The social welfare is higher. 
if according to personal income tax, Brazil income is growing at 10% per year for six years in a row. This is a new economic miracle. Unfortunately, I don't think Brazil went through a new economic miracle during these last six or seven years. But you cannot take one without taking the other. If you trust the personal income tax data, you have higher inequality. It didn't change that much. But income is 31% higher than we expect that to be, and it's growing much faster, 10% a year. Okay, so social wealth. So it's good news. I would love to live in this country, but I don't think. I think what's happening is that Brazil, as other developing countries, we're getting a lot of fall of informality. People are joined to in, in income tax data. So it's different when you study the U.S., U.K., where it's more or less, you know, people already included. So this, of course, is a discussion, big discussion, but... So the issue now, looking at the last years, is, in a, is the Gini, back to the household surveys, is stable now? Looks like. Last data, 2013, came out. This is the Latin America. So there's a parallel again, not only in the rise and in the fall of inequality, but also in the recent stability. So that's a concern, since inequality levels are still very high. I'm positive with this aspect based on these more uh, restricted data. It's labor, per capita labor income in the main metro cities. We have data until October 2014. And we had, there was this stability in 2012 and 13, which is comparable with the National Household Survey, so they, they match. But there is this fall afterwards. So we are basically, in October, we are exactly on the trend. So this data gives us an idea that inequality will go back again, you know, fall again. But it's a more restricted data. It's, this is from 64 to 54, roughly, or 9 percentage points in a Gini. This is growing. This is something that Europe lived in the golden, the, what the French call the glorious 30 years post-war period, Brazil lived during nine years. Household income. I will go back to this discrepancy between Gini, between household data and um, national accounts data. So, give a picture of the world. This is Brazil. As I said, Brazil is middle of the world in poverty as well, extreme poverty. We are on the intermediary color. But within this average, you have all colors. There is a world within Brazil. So we have the color of developed, and colors of underdeveloped countries. It's still, this is census 2010 data. So it's, uh, it's still very, very unequal. Brazil's main target is to overcome extreme poverty. We did a good job in 12 years. It fell 56%, so more than what you would expect in 25 years. Um, what explains that? 
half of it is inequality and half of it is growth of household income. So it's what I like to call the middle path. Brazil is combined, which is very different from what we did in our economic miracle, what emerging countries did are doing now. So Brazil has this diversification of actions. It's growing, especially household income-wise, and redistributing, okay? So this is the Brazil recipe, okay? I'm going to try to look if this model is still working or, or not, you know, try to look at more recent data at different periods. So I'll, I'll read that to you. It's a bit uh, complicated. So what explains? So I'm, I'm using two two measures, mean of household income and the 40% poorest, which will be an object probably of the sustainable development goals. Look at the bottom 40%, which I think is a very good direction because in Brazil we are having problems because you are targeting the extreme poverty, which is 3%. So if you get a little fluctuations, it makes all the difference. 0 0.3 above or below. It's, so I, I think we should broad and look at the 40%. I think this is a good direction given by the SDGs, the shared prosperity concept. So the red one is the shared prosperity, 40% bottom. The green one is the mean. So the bottom 40 is growing two and a half percentage points above the mean during this, since the turn of the century. There are social security impacts, there are other transfers and other income impacts which explain more in the share prosperity than the mean. But the main driver is labor income, which is good news. Labor income is the main driving force of both mean and especially in the bottom 40. The bottom 40 in Brazil are growing because they are earning from their work more than the top. Besides that, they get a contribution of programs such as Bolsa Família. Some of you, of you probably went to the Teresa Campelo, Minister of Social Development, speech here on Bolsa Família. Some on Social Security, which is linked to the to the to minimum wages in Brazil. So, but what explains labor? It's not the quantity of labor. Quantity of labor is not changing very much. Effort, hours, participation, and employment, it's changing, but not that much. I'm looking at the long period here. Now even less so. Although we are in the lowest unemployment level ever, now, it won't go down because we are close to full employment. So Brazil is a, is, a, is a tricky country because labor markets close to what you may call full employment, although it's hard to define, and the economy is not growing that much GDP-wise. Of course, if you take labor income into consideration more directly, you get the... So it's basically wages, and so you have you decompose that the value of education, no wages per years of schooling, hourly wages, and what you may call education bonus. So the main driving force behind the growth of income in Brazil is education, which is good news. It's labor behind that education, 
and uh, especially in the bottom part, okay? Thank you. So let's look good, uh, at interactions between what you, which are maybe called the components of inclusive development. Of course, equality and prosperity, but prosperity following uh, the commission of uh, Stiglitz, Sain, and Fitossi. Look not only at GDP, but also at household surveys. That's what I've been doing. But let's look at sustainability and sensibility aspects. So let's look at people's perception as well. In a democracy, this is very crucial to understand decision-making. But also, I mean, people know. We economists, we tend to think we, we have, have a very potential tool, scientific tool, because we assume a lot of hypotheses and we test on the data, which is a very good approach. But sometimes it's good to hear people directly what they, so it's complement each other, as you know. So we're going to look at sustainability, not look at environmental and things like that, but more like into assets, human capital, and things like that, and sensibility. So, so perhaps the most important graph that I already showed you, this is mean GDP growth, in, and now I'm using starting 2003. Why? Because that's when growth resumed in Brazil, 2003. Inequality started to fall since 2001. Growth, employment generation since, two, since the end of 2003 recession. Okay? So in this period, um, GDP per capita grew 30%, while Household income grew 57. Huge difference. Almost twice faster. Okay? That's why, I mean, if you talk to social scientists, yes, sociologists, and yes, social economists that look at household surveys in the last 10 years or so, we are much more excited about Brazil than macroeconomists. I used to be a macroeconomist in the past. And because there is this huge difference in the mean, I'm not talking about inequality, okay? I will explain that. This is basically, so to advance that, it's basically not because of nominal difference, it's just a deflator. The implicit GDP deflator is growing much faster than consumer price indices. That's what explains the, this divergence. That's... Uh, Let me skip that, otherwise it's... Um, so the, the, there is an issue, let me just briefly. One related issue, nominal, uh, labor productivity is growing also two percentage points per year above labor, uh, below labor cost. As two percentage years, GDP is growing below pinages. They are not... They are cousins, you know, this relationship, because they come from different surveys, and they ex are explained by the same reason. So, like, Brazil in Latin America ranks really well when you talk about mean growth of people. We are not that well in the ranking of GDP growth. So this is not something that is common to Brazil and Latin America. The inequality part is very common, not this part, okay? Okay. Um, 
and but if you look at nominal series, they are parallel to each other. So there is no gap between productivity and in nominal terms. Why do I have to work with real terms if I'm worried about uh, uh, discrepancy? You know, the, you know, the cost is growing, labor cost is growing more than the productivity. This could be a, word, a problem, but if they're growing nominal terms is enough, they are growing together. People, I'm one of the few persons who, who think about that, I mean, who look things like that. But I think it's... Uh, so then we have... It's the deflator, we have this map it, but this is not a trivial thing because the first thing you look when you look at a country is growth. And so Brazil, in the first thing you look at, you... You, you get lost, depending on which track you go. If you go through household surveys or you go to national accounts. But at least we know why. We don't have to throw them away. We just have to work with good deflators. And this, of course, is another round of uh, heated discussions. But I think this is... So this is the Human Development Index for Brazilian municipalities. 2,041% had very low human development. This red part is not a communist invasion. It's very low human development index. Okay, 41% in 2000. 2010, 0.6. Okay, from 41 to 0.6 in one decade. Because people tend to look at the Brazilian case and say, well, you have credit, consumer credit, you have consumption, you have Bolsa Familia. Tell me something structural. It's a deep transformation going on. People are living, we, we have now, just came out last week, this is, I live here in Rio, which is also an Olympic city. This is, that's where I live here, okay? <laughs> These are the suburbs of Rio, the great Rio. This is the map in 2000. This is 2010. You get like three and a half years of longer life expectancy, of course the world is improving, but three and a half years in one decade, that's education. Education is the main driving force behind these changes from very low level, okay? So the point I would like to make is people are changing in a very basic way their lives. Infant mortality fell 48% in 10 years, in the Northeast, 58%. What is, what is more structural than that? <coughs> so I think it's... Uh, the, the problem is that people look only at the macroeconomic data very often. And um, there is this discrepancy. This is education, quality of education. So Brazil in 2003 was the very last in the PISA exams. So very 15 years old proficiency, very low. But if you get these countries observed, it was the highest jump, still very low level. So Brazil still has a very bad photo, social-wise, but the movement is reasonably good. Of course, you can say, well, if you had bad education, you should improve. But this is not necessarily true, can be or not. So, so I think this, this phrase here, I think, 
reveals a bit about Brazil, especially in structural indicators, like education, life expectancy, etc. So this is the same graph I showed you. This is the 10% riches, and this is the median. So the median Brazilian, the João da Silva, would be the John Smith here. That is for 30 years more or less stable here in Brazil, grew in 10 years 86%. So the, and this is really something different for, in Brazilian history. The average Joe is growing three times faster than GDP. Why? Because inequality is falling, but the mean of household income. So, and, and, and that's different. Like in China, GDP is growing two percentage points above GDP. In Brazil, it's the other way around. So it's uh, in most of the countries. It's not that what happens in Brazil doesn't happen in other countries. is more than that. It's, uh, so it's. This is looking at distribution, comparing people equal, looking at 2014. In 2013, cumulative. So the bottom four, this is data until August 2014. So very recently, this year, the economy is really stagnated GDP-wise. The bottom five is still growing 4.1, the middle 2.7, and the top 1%. So Brazilian labor market, now we just got the highest wage level ever, the lowest in employment, and still people, I wouldn't bet that will go down again, but it's going until some point. So there is a limit in this process, that's why we this is median income growth in Brazil since 1977. Um, you have some peaks, valleys. If I, if I ask you to choose, if I give you the information, Brazil has elections every four years. I bet you're going to choose exactly the elections years. That's... This is the graph. The red ones are post-electoral years. These, the green ones are electoral years. So all electoral years were good, good, good for the people. All post-electoral years was bad for the people. <laughs> Except the last, the 2007 was much worse than 2006, but the, the purple ones we cannot, it's, Two years, we, don't, we didn't have peanuts, so we cannot disentangle pre- and post-election years. So growth in median income growth during election years, 11.3, positive. Post-elections, minus 7.3. We should have elections every year, definitely. <laughs> you know, it's... A, So this is PME data, uh, 12 month growth. This is 2013. We had bad labor market here, inflation went up. Not so much for the median, the mean. This is 
less data, 4.2. That's what I'm saying. Brazilian economy is growing zero according to GDP, according to household surveys, same metric, 4.2. So this is very hard to reconcile. And this is... And now we are October. I, I just wrote, uh, Professor Anthony was with me in, uh, in Amsterdam. We, there was a launch of a book of um, which I had a chapter called the Lula's Real. What's Lula's Real? Was the confidence shock given in 2002 election, 2003? I think maybe we, you know, uh, President Dilma just gave her confidence shock by uh, um, nominating um, a more um, conservative finance minister, a very good one. So I think this is maybe, I'm being positive, but that's what I could hope for, you know, to have, a, you know, I think Brazil has to follow a middle path. We lost the path. We didn't lose the north, we know where we want to go, but we have to go through the middle, you know, that's the, and that's what I think, I hope we are heading for. New middle class, I wrote something about that. So to just give you an idea, low middle class and like more like English style, style middle class. 44 million in, since 2003 were incorporated into this low middle class, which is a Brazilian middle class, is a world middle class, is not a US or a British middle class. Doesn't have two dogs, two cars, <laughs> not talking about that. But the higher middle class, which would have, you know, two cars, 12.5 million. So about 57 million, which is almost the population. I don't know what's the population of England these days, but in a period of... And uh, what is surprising, Brazil, I think Brazil is in a very difficult situation in the sense that if you look at objective measures, education, income, we are in the lowest polarization level ever. So Brazil never been so close to being one country. Still divided, of course. It's like the Sugarloaf, you know, two mountains. They are close together. But polarization of ideas has never been so high as now, I think. So there is a kind of... Uh, incongruency, or maybe it's the trajectory when inequality goes down, the dynamics generates conflicts, but perhaps in the long run will be more. We don't know, but it's, there is this paradox. One data that I like about Brazil, different items. Did you travel by plane? Did you purchase in the last three years, a plane ticket, domestic or international, or did you buy a vocational course, private, did you buy a house? At least one-third, for example, in travel by plane, one-third was the first time in their lives that they ever flew. In uh, buying a house, formerly three-quarters. So that's the spirit of the new middle class, the spirit of inequality fall. Is the first time you experience, of course, you have a problem because then you have a 
congestion in the airports, the infrastructure didn't go in the same speed, people bought cars, so we are all you know, stuck on a traffic jam, and, and that's part of the, the problems, the challenges. So the outside homes, people, uh, things are not moving as fast as within homes. There is this, the outside homes is the top one, the speed. So just to finish, it's something on demonstrations. Perhaps this is too heated for, it's, uh, <clears throat> what's Brazil, June 2013, we had demonstrations during the Confederations Cup. What's the profile of people who join demonstrations and those who disapprove. Looks at the people who join are younger people, mostly male, low, uh, high educated, higher income, a thousand reais more income. So not the poor who are protest, but maybe this is part of the demonstrations all around. But if you make a model to see what are the variables which explain joining the demonstration in different degrees, Internet, not only you have access, but use social networks. This is the main. So there is a new technology, and there are some variables. I don't have time to explore it, but I think it's linked to the reduction of inequality. It's not the only thing you have. Uses three times uh, public transportation a week, like a bus. This explains a lot. This was the origin of. There is uh, corruption issues as well. There are lots of issues, but I don't think inequality can fall 12 years in a row without having some political economy issues uh, pending. But this is, of course, subject to discussion. And just the, the last data. What Brazil... Brazil, as you know, there are many Brazilians here, you can see... Uh, we are, you know, Brazilian, people in Brazil are happy, happy people, happy country, but more than we should, perhaps, you know, our money in our pockets. But one thing that Brazil outstanding is outstanding is in terms of life satisfaction in the future, okay? Ask a Brazilian, give a great your life in five years' time, okay? Brazil had the highest life satisfaction, according to Gallup World Poll, covers 155 countries. Actually, these surveys was done eight years in a row. All eight times, Brazil was always number one. Okay? So this captures the spirit of Brazil, the country of the future. And that's maybe a problem, especially in my, for my job, strategic affairs, that's very tough. How you can convince people to save, to invest in education, to buy insurance. You know, people think, you know, uh, God is Brazilian or, you know, <laughs> things will work out in a way, you know. And they, including the last one, we just have few countries. I bet if anyone wants to bet with me, we'll be number one again, okay? Nine years in a row. The happiest place on earth. Is the happy in the future, not in the present, okay? That's, uh... But the problem is when you ask Brazilians, rate the country in five years. The, the country is much worse. 
which is a kind of a contradiction. Everyone is above the mean, which should be an impossibility. So there is the, which I think helps us to understand Brazil. Brazil is a country where people are very optimistic with respect to the future, but not to the country itself. There are some collective problems. I think this captures some incongruency. And if I go back to the first slide, turning points of Brazil to that decades. 64 military coup, economic miracle, inequality rise. 74, democratization begins. We had the Portugal Revolução dos Cravos, celebration 40 years. 84, direct elections for president. As you can see, more or less, there is a pattern there. 94, we had our economic stabilization. 2004, that's where we start this middle path, growth with inequality. Inequality was falling until. So the question is, how about now, 2014? If we hear the streets, demonstrations, voices, public services, quality and corruption, Crime, environment, access to markets, these are different questions, but I think are collective questions. If you see the change, Brazil, I mean, democratization is a process, part of the process of development, but high inflation, not necessarily. Um, high inequality, not necessarily. So these are Brazilian characteristics that we were able to address still very high informality, still very high inequality. And these are also collective issues. So, side agenda, just leave this slide here, not going to go into, so we have time to, to debate. But, so, macro productivity and savings, these I think are key. You know, growth, supply side, investment, productivity, we have a, an agenda of, on these two issues. Education, of course, is related to productivity and social. We have different agenda for the youth, which in Brazil is the highest ever we always we ever had, and we will always have. Fifty-one million Brazilians are youngsters. It's a demographic bonus, but public policies have to improve for this group. The the youngsters are in a good, in a better situation than their older brothers or their parents, but not because what happened during their youth, but what happened during their infancy. The agenda is stuck there. So this is a very early childhood. We have actions on that. Immigration, <coughs> we are working, Brazil is a very close economy. We only have 0.3% of first generation immigrants. Very world average is three percent, U.S. is fifteen percent. So we are very close, and we think there is a fast track where you can attract human capital from outside. And Brazilians are very much in favor of attracting. Just the country is still very close, although multiplied by five, but the number is still very small. The number of formal workers from outside. And we have an agenda of poverty and middle class. But I stop here. And I, I'll, I'll leave you with uh, the presentation. 
and there is some links to to some of our works that might might be useful. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. As time is really flying, I think I'm going to forego my, I have lots of questions I want to ask you, and first begin with the floor, because, and I wanted to also make a, a special thank you to the LSE Brazilian Student Society, who, who has uh, mobilized quite actively for this meeting. Um, and I, I think maybe what we should do is collect uh, about three questions at a time, yeah, and then uh, give you a chance to answer. So you start up here. We have, please uh, say who you are. Um, um, hi there, I'm Francis. I'm from China. Um, I wonder, when do you see Brazil um, no longer being an emerging country, but joining the first world to be a developed country? And what will be your measurements whether that has been achieved? Thank you. Another question? Yes, here. Boa noite. Um, I'm Julia. I'm Brazilian. Um, so, if, like you mentioned, if Brazil stops growing, um, will the government be able to sustain the welfare programs, like you mentioned, the Bolsa Família? Okay. Anybody else yet? Yes. Up here. Hi, um, I'm Brazilian as well. Um, my question is that during the financial crisis, we were, as Brazilians, were able to sustain Brazil because of the very strong domestic markets. Yet, um, now that industry isn't growing and we're starting to prepare for recession, what are some measures that can be made so that we can spur industry again and? Um, just incentivize industry to grow again. Good question. Okay, you want to tackle those three and then we'll take another round? Very good questions. So um, let me go um, backwards. Um, <clears throat> tackle the two last questions together. Um, <clears throat> Brazil has to engage in a supply side effort, productivity, savings. Our problem is not aggregate demand. It's supply side. We have to raise our investment rates. Uh, our manufacturing is in bad shape. Our services were, were, was doing really well. But I think that in a, so supply side is, is, is the way to go. And during the recession, we had demand-driven uh, policies that did work for a while. But perhaps we insisted in this movement for more than more time than we should, and um, now it's a supply side investment productivity. We have a, a huge uh, agenda on that uh, innovation manufacturing. To some extent, it's part of the process. Living, I mean, to reduce the size of manufacturing. I don't think we should. Uh, only look at manufacturing as the driver. You know, Brazil, productivity in the agricultural sector in Brazil is an example of rise. Of course, you have Brazil diversified economy, 
but um, the problem is that with the in, going to the second question about uh, of course if Brazil doesn't grow we won't have the resources to to do the policies we need to fund the, the actions uh, we have for example um, a need for education investments and uh, we just linked education to the uh, oil reserves use from the pre-south it's um, but what I think is the following. For example, if you see the minimum wage rule in Brazil and the social system in Brazil is very linked to the minimum wage, except for Bolsa Família, we think, well, Brazil is raising the minimum wage, population is getting old, the system is not sustainable, which I agree in principle. But given this discrepancy between, you know, uh, minimum wage is rising according to CPI, but if you take as a share of GDP, which gives you your ability to finance this in the short and in the long run, it's not so clear. My opinion is that we have to look at Brazil, at the numbers. The numbers are not that easy. We have this discrepancy that affects many different. So we don't know really, I mean, um, the social security is a key issue that we have to address Brazil but has been increasing expenditures lower than I would expect given this discrepancy between CPI and uh, we have a rule in Brazil where minimum wages rise according to past GDP, which is not a good rule in my opinion, should be uh, per capita GDP or productivity GDP, but given the discrepancies is real GDP plus CPI. If it was real GDP plus uh, nominal GDP, then it would have exploded already. So I think uh, you know my main point here is that simple statistics about how much is growing, what's our effort in Brazil, they are very contradictory given this discrepancy between GDP and household surveys or CPI. And, uh, consume and price in, in, uh, price index, uh, consumer price index. And to my Chinese friend, I, um, <clears throat> Brazil is in fact emerging. I know in China you have this obsession, for good reasons, with the middle income trap. And Brazil has been trapped in this, in this situation for a while. And uh, we have lost decades. Uh, 80s and part of the 90s, high inflation, high instability that I describe it here. And um, I think we should, you know, uh, be more inspired in the, in the Chinese example with high savings rate, high investment rates, uh, more uh, export-oriented as I think China should look at the Brazilian example. That's why I say you know, the combination would be just uh, the perfect, if, if, if it possible. <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> this is very hard to say, but I mean, the population in Brazil, because you know, I, I'm, a, 
I'm a social scientist. I used to be a macroeconomist, but I'm a social scientist. So normally, the final objective of everything, not only economics, but all fields related to public policy, is to increase the well-being of the population. So in a sense, Brazil has been doing that quite well. We, we are like a, a team that makes lots of goals, but you see, well, it's not working very well, but the scores say, well, look at this. So this is part of the... So, you know, uh, I mean, in terms of, as I said, uh, the median Brazilian in 10 years, income rose 90%, 86% in 10 years in real per capita terms. So maybe, you know, we already got there, but the supply side is, you know, create difficulties, create challenges, so it's, it's, a, it's a trick question, and maybe, you know, we are rushing too fast to have a, like, European type of well-being without having the, you know, the supply side to back that. There is a bit of that as well. Now, I really do have to abuse my privilege and ask you one of the next three questions. Uh, and, and that has to do with your answer about the necessity to downsize manufacturing. And uh, I could see this in relationship to the contribution to overall GDP. But if you want to um, learn from China, increase savings, and you know, where is Brazil in the global value chains? And don't you have to actually use the authority and the capacity you've developed to, to get you know, higher up um, in the value chain to appropriate new technology, et cetera. There was some evidence that that was going on uh, during the period when you sustained growth and reduced inequality. So uh, I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Now we have the gentleman here. And then the next person is the woman right in front of him. Yeah. Oh, we have lots more people raising questions up there. <laughs> OK, I'll come back to you. Okay, so my name is Pedro. I'm also from Rio. And uh, like my concern is more related to democracy than to growth. Uh, because like Brazil, historically, is a very authoritarian country. Like our democracy is still very fragile comparing to like other European countries or like US. And like, so my concern about this distribution or major, major distribution by the government is not about the growth, but about the size of the government that has been increasing. And consequently, like the PT or Dilma has been like also like influencing more the economy. The elections right now, she said like there is no point to have like a, a central independent central bank. Like you have the Petrobras case and the media overall. So, uh, how do the government and you reply to that concern? Hello, good evening. My name is Melanie. I'm from Germany. Um, I need some help with thinking here. So, um, the, um, you mentioned there's currently two sets of data available in Brazil to measure inequality. One being the household survey, the PNAD data, and the other one being the personal income tax data. Now, I've um, had a quick eye on that previous slide, and it says the reach of the PNAD data is about 100,000 households. I wondered about the reach of the personal income tax data and also as the wealthy, um, not just in Brazil but the whole of Latin America as actually globally, are notoriously famous for not declaring their wealth, uh, which data 
would have more access to the, um, the status of the wealthy. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> no, it's true. I mean, the, the, the part of the personal income tax, we really, we are starting to that. I invite people interested. There is a new data on the website of the Secretaria de Receita Federal, you know, the, the tax authority in Brazil. So we're just starting to look at this data. And um, um, I think uh, PNAD data is very good to, to to capture poverty, you know, even well-being of the population, social welfare, but not inequality because it doesn't get capital income, doesn't get assets or the incomes of the very rich. Um, but um, um, income tax data won't help you, for instance, in Brazil, I don't know how is it here, but with housing which is the main asset, you know, about 50% of the assets is housing. But the Pinagi can help you with that. We are doing some work on that. And, by, and surprisingly, what we see is not a huge growth of imputed rents, which would be, you know, the services provided by housing, but a, 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 a very, an even larger fall of inequality of housing, of assets, which is the main physical assets of people. So I think there is a, a, a huge uh, agenda there that we are only starting. And, um, but I somewhat think the same happens in Colombia. When you see a country that is changing, in a, in a, uh, informality in Brazil is falling two percentage points a year for the last 10 years or so. It's a big transformation. So I don't think we are comparing lemon, uh, I mean, uh, apples with, with apples. So, um, and, uh, but I think this is an agenda, a very important agenda that we, we're going to go through this, uh, this period. We, we, we open, uh, uh, I don't know the name in English, but uh, the uh, kind of secrecy room that allows researchers to work with uh, you know, secret data, people, well, we want to preserve the identity, like the income tax. Yet IPEA in Brazil was the last thing I did when I was IPEA was to, so, but it's, it's just starting, okay? That wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, with the Pedro question on democracy and the size of the state, because Brazil is a, a really a different, uh, Different country. We have a very high tax burden increase from 25 to 36, 37 percent of GDP in like 14 years. So it's a big tax burden, but with a lot of informality still, although it's reducing a lot of informality. So it's not that we have tax burden, a high tax burden, and we have a high tax, but in spite of the high informality. So it's a kind of uh, we. Our fiscal rules are not the ideal ones. We should really embrace fiscal reform. The English example, I think, is quite uh, provide us quite few lessons, and we, we're starting to use more English lessons, like in the case of the national health system. Very inspiring for some actions we we just 
undertook in terms of health, inspired on the British example. But there is an old finance minister, Delphine Neto, who he would say that there are many Brazilians here, so you, you might capture the, the, the idea. So he says, well, Brazil has the tax burden or the tax system of England, in terms of the tax burden, and the quality of public service of Ghana. So it's in Ghana, which means in Portuguese is <laughs> full oneself, okay? I don't agree with that. I think our tax system is more like Spain, okay? So it's is Ghana. So it's really, you know, getting to the neck of people. We, we, the, the only advantage of having uh, problems is that you can really improve a lot if you address these problems. And I think really tax is a big, uh, is a big issue in Brazil. You know, the quality, not only the quantity, but the quality of our tax. Um, to Professor James, uh, very tough questions on the manufacturing. I'm not really a specialist on that, but I think it's um, uh, Brazil, we are not really well connected to, to value chains, to global value chains. We have to explore more that. Uh, we have done some policies uh, to reduce tax burden on manufacturing. These policies don't seem very effective to produce results so far uh, in terms of production, but maybe they were not, we don't know that, but maybe employment-wise they were effective because uh, so, but I, I just don't think, because we made quite a few attempts to try to improve manufacturing, and I, I think we should try less vertical and more horizontal type of policies. And, um, and uh, I, I'm in favor to this type of, of, of change. You know, I think education is a very good industrial policy. It's not the only one, of course, but we should take care of our education, our science. We, we have now a, a, a program, Science Without Borders, sending people to study engineering in other countries, and um, is perhaps more important than specific policies on a specific sector, but there is a huge debate on that. I'm not going to... What, what I think Brazil is good is in terms of uh, share, share productivity. You know, people, but... Uh, and uh, agricultural sector can give us many lessons, but manufacturing, unfortunately, is going down in the last last years. Okay, great. All right, I'm coming back down here now. Yeah, we have a question here. Um, hello, my name is Atsiri Gonzalez. I'm from Mexico, and I'm a student of social policy and development. I have two small questions. First of all, I am. Brazil's social policy is strongly linked to like the government in power, um, but we saw like this year, well, election was very close. So, has there been any? Well, as a strategy in long term, has there been any effort to institutionalize the social policies, uh, like creating laws, or I mean, what's the long term, or how are you planning to like perpetuate this? And second, most of these things that were highlighted in the presentation are government-led initiatives. Would you highlight any role of the civil society in this progress? 
Hello, um, I'm Liliana, I'm from Portugal. You don't follow my instructions. Sorry? That's okay, go ahead. Ah, okay. So, hello, I'm Liliana from Portugal. And you mentioned about middle class, and a lot of people say that there's a new middle class in Brazil, a lot due to the accessibility to credit and credit installments, so not really um, power to buy something, but just because of the credit. Um, do you think there's a real new middle class, and if so, is it different from the traditional idea of middle class? Thank you. Uh, uh, I'm from Brazil, too. Uh, First, thank you for your presentation. It was really nice. But uh, for me, you didn't answer the first question of this night. What do you do, you know, as a minister? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, <clears throat> if I go, if I follow <laughs> the... No, I think there is a... A huge agenda to follow supply side, productivity, savings, immigration. This can really, um, uh, we have really to invest in the supply side more, investment rates. Um, what I think is the following Brazilian population, not talking about uh, civil society yet, but I think Brazilians have done a good job, especially the poor Brazilians in the last 20 years or 30 years. We, we as economists, we tend to call the 80s and the beginning of the 90s as lost decades. But if you look at democracy and, and, and social indicators, they were not steady. They were improving. They improved even more after. And, uh, and I think this makes a difference in terms of, you know, I mean, uh, what's more important than... I mean, for example, uh, fertility rates in Brazil. In the 1970s, it was 5.8 kids per woman. Now it's 1.9. As I said, infant mortality fell. So the thing on the, this very tough question, what to do, I think we, can, uh, we cannot forget the past. You know, Brazil, as I said, is known as the country of the future, but in the last... Uh, since the turn of the new century, we have been the country of the past, in the sense that those people who were left behind, they were doing the catch-up. You cannot have a society, we know, if we tend to think on innovation and things which we have to think, have to think in both, but you cannot live, you know, uh, in these new middle classes about that, are people who are making a huge transformation on their lives, and that's what Brazil woke up. And perhaps we are, we are not doing a good job with respect to innovation, to respect to the, to the future part. But to the past, that's what Brazil has been doing. And I think this gets this population in a situation where they can really participate in a normal life, what you may call a normal life. And, uh, and I think there is a lot of, you know, in terms of this new middle class, uh, which is part of an agenda. There is a, at SAI, we have an agenda, uh, which is ours, which design policies for this new middle class. But what I think people tend to, to look, don't look at the structural side. The main symbol of the middle class, which is also called C-class, 
is not a car, is not a credit card, is not a consumption. It is carteira de trabalho, formal employment. People are getting formal employment. This is maybe a simple thing, but that's what people that's what people didn't think they would get, and that's what they were getting in the last, you know, since you know uh, we had this confidence shock in 2003, and you see almost doubling the level of formal employment generation. And this is very structural because for firms to hire labor in Brazil is quite expensive. So if they to fire is also expensive. So if they are hiring, is because they they don't they didn't think they were would have to they were betting. So, um, but this is of course you know the middle class in Brazil. This new middle class is not uh, is, as I said is not a U.S. middle class, but. It's not only Brazilian, but as the first one of the first graphs showed, it's also world middle class. Because if I say, well, I'm a middle class country, and if I have the U.S. as a symbol, you're going to be poor for a long time. You know, because the U.S. is a rich country. So I, I think uh, we have to, you know, to choose reasonable targets. Because if you choose, you know, a very high bar. We're going only to allow a small part of that's what Brazil have been doing for many, many decades. So I think the new middle class is is uh, is very structural based, very complex, and are people who are, as I showed here, flying for the first time, are getting their formal job, the first son that goes to a university, and this is the the conquest, but there is a structural part there. To Gonzalez's question from Mexico, the two questions. First, the uh, civil society in Brazil is very, very active. It's very, very active in all aspects. It's, uh, Brazil is a country movement. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very alive democracy and uh, and um, I, with respect to um, to social programs, I, I, I believe that Bolsa Família, as much as in Progressa in Mexico, it's a new platform in the sense that you don't have these, it's a different, uh, it's, uh, it's not the old intermediation with the poor political intermediation. I mean, people have their cards, it's true that uh, these programs tend to expand in times of election. It's true. But at least the person will receive, have the right to receive that for two, three years. It's not like giving a food basket before the elections. And um, so there is room for opportunistic behavior. I was in Mexico in... Uh, in, uh, in uh, I think it was 2007. The government launched, not the government, civil society, UNDP, a big program to isolate uh, policies, social policies, from the political cycle. And it was a big thing. I saw that. I went to different places. Didn't work. 
It's very, very tough question, I think. I think it's... Uh, but at least we have some institutionality, and I think the Bolsa Familia type is a type that goes to the poor. You have an infrastructure that you reach to 50 million Brazilians. You can, and it's just the start of having a more reasonable, but I think the idea of isolating it from political pressures, I think it's a, it's a very important one. I try to. It's uh, so many. <laughs> Let me take some more. Um, you have to be very brief because, uh, and I can just take three more other gentlemen here. I'm in Luis, Brazilian, optimist, and happy. Congratulations for your presentation. Uh, what is your opinion about uh, the development? Uh, strategic infrastructure. You, you mean infrastructure? Yes. Okay. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, I'm Gao Jie from China. I have a question for you. So uh, what do you expect the new middle class in Brazil to co cooperate with the government to reduce the inequality and to maintain the stability of the society? Thank you. And uh, here, Jonathan John, sitting in the front. Hi. Um, here. Uh, Jonathan from um, University of London. Um, I, what do you think accounts for the fact that in spite of the tremendous social progress, the, um, the homicide rate in the country actually is higher um, almost than it's ever been, where it in I don't know, 2012, 50,000 people were murdered, which is much more um, than in most civil wars? in most countries, and certainly what differentiate, what, what makes Brazil quite similar to South Africa, but certainly quite different from China and, and India. Perfect. Okay. Um, I think uh, crime, like inequality, like um, high inflation, it's, uh, we say in Brazil we have a fruit called jabuticaba. Big fruit, when we say, you know, when if you have something that you only have in Brazil and it's not Jabuticaba, then it's not a good thing. And we have a collection of these big problems, which are collective problems. What I think is impressive with respect to crime, because crime fell quite a lot, for example, in Sao Paulo, Minas Gerais, and Rio, which are the rich states, and rose a lot in the northeast of the country, where income has been growing twice or three times faster than south. So this is not what you would expect, and there is really a... And I think uh, we have to, I mean, I, you have some policies, for example, in Rio, UPP, the U, U, Police Pacification Units, it's working locally, I don't know if in general equilibrium it's a good solution because if you have a UPP, I happen to have a UPP close to my house, so I love UPP, but I'm a lucky guy, you know, because, you know, uh, so 
I don't. I, I think we have many, many challenges. But I think this is a good example of this collective problem. What I mean, collective problems are relationship problems. Like for example, poor. I can say someone is poor or not poor. I cannot say someone is unequal. Inequality is a, a characteristic of the relationship. So Brazil, crime is part of this, uh, as informality, as inflation is also a problem of relationship between among Brazilians. And going to the first question, Brazil has made quite a progress in terms of social infrastructure, light, uh, water, etc. What we are really uh, uh, struggling is sanitation, basic sanitation, which is, I think also is part of this collective problem. Because if you don't have a water, if you don't have energy in your house, you have a problem. Lack of sanitation is a problem of the other people. It's your problem, but so, and I think this is, is symbolic. You know, the level of sanitation in Brazil, uh, I mean, um, sewage is, 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 is really bad. And we have to invest a lot in terms of uh, logistic infrastructure to grow, concessions, using better the private sector to do this combination. And uh, we just had a few concessions in the few airports in, in Brazil. It's working. But I think we, we, we are not taking advantage. The advantage we are trying to take of this, having a strong civil society, we are not uh, doing the same thing with the private sector, and that I think we, we could do much better. And uh, the question uh, from, from, from China, the middle class, because Brazil, uh, <coughs> Brazilian middle class is kind of a, a son or the daughter of growth with inequality reduction, growth of people's incomes, this combination. Like in China, you have a much, uh, much faster growing middle class, in spite of, not in spite, actually, in fact, that inequality went up in China because the levels of income were lower, uh, also helped to increase the middle class in China, in a way, not so much for poverty, uh, of course, poverty reduced a lot, but would reduce even more if inequality went down, but not the same with, with inequality. So uh, I, I don't think that's my opinion. Uh, I have some empirical basis behind that. I don't have much time to explain. But I don't think is the new middle class is so much uh, uh, so unstable in terms of, uh, politically speaking, I think it's more the traditional middle class, in a way, for good reasons, basic political economy reasons. Not only that, it's much more complex than that. But I think that the Brazilian path, it's, uh, you know, broad people, these people are buying cars. I think we invest too much, you know, on cars, we should have more on public transportation and this. So, um, but this, of course, is subject to a very lively debate. Don't you think Minister Neri makes statistics fun and interesting? Yeah. So if you're done there, you're welcome to c come over here.
Yeah. So I think we thank you for a really fascinating talk and a very engaging uh, responses to the.